Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor of physical therapy provides tips and tricks for how to use electronic devices without injuring yourself. Having choices of, of movement, and, and really the key is, is just trying to change up your activity and your position. A dermatologist goes over what's important to know about skin care for senior citizens. You have to take it as a case-by-case -case basis. Why is this patient itching? Is it just because they have dry skin? or do they have an underlying disease that's causing them to itch? And a doctor of internal medicine talks about the role of hospice and palliative care. Palliative care is appropriate for any patient suffering from a serious disease at any stage of the disease, regardless of the fact that they're still taking treatment or not for their main condition. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear from a dermatologist about how senior citizens can best take care of their skin. Then we'll discuss hospice and palliative care options with a doctor of internal medicine. But first, a doctor of physical therapy gives advice for the safest ways of handling electronic devices. I'm Amber Smith and this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. So many people rely on electronic devices of some sort to get through their days, whether by using cell phones, tablets, handheld gaming devices, or laptop computers. How you position yourself while using your device may influence whether you're at risk for developing an injury. Dr. Adam Rufa, an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy Education at Upstate Medical University, is here to talk about the best way to use modern devices. Welcome, Dr. Rufa. Thanks for having me. Now, you've done research yourself on whether there's a connection between posture and shoulder pain. What have you found? Yeah, there, and I picked shoulder pain because shoulder pain is one of those disorders that uh, we've been highly suspicious that posture could have an impact. And, you know, the way the structures are, it makes sense that if you are in certain positions that it would maybe put extra stress on tissues. However, we're finding, like, a lot of the things that we research, it's a little more complex than that. And so, so really what I did is I did a review of all the studies that have been done to look and see, is there consistent evidence that posture is important? And there actually, I did find very consistent evidence, but it was very consistent evidence that posture does not play a big role really? in developing shoulder pain. Hmm. And that doesn't mean that if somebody already has shoulder pain, that changing their position and posture and how they move might not help. And we do that a lot. Somebody comes in and it hurts to lift my arm up. Sometimes changing how they're sitting and moving can put less pressure on certain structures and it feels better. But to be able to say to somebody that if you sit a certain way or have a certain posture, it'll help prevent or keep you from having shoulder pain. It just doesn't seem like that's the case right now. Maybe as we get better information, um, we'll, we'll change our ideas. But there's been, been several studies. I mean, I, I found nine specific that looked directly at that. And all nine of them did not find the link between the posture somebody had and the amount of pain that they had. Interesting. Okay. Well, what sorts of issues do you see developing in people um, related to their use of electronic devices? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's been a lot on this. You, you, see, you see news reports all the time about the, the dangers of, of spending too much time on electronics. And I, I agree with them that it probably is dangerous, uh, but more so because when you're on electronics, you're usually not moving. Hmm. Okay. And our bodies are really over the over the our evolution have been have designed to move, and we're not really meant to be staying staying in any one position for a really long time. And our our children, and now and even even as adults, we spend more and more time on electronics and less and less time moving, and that has ramifications throughout. I mean, it, it has ramifications on maybe our musculoskeletal health and if we get pain, right. but also our cardiovascular health. Um, it, it's a risk factor for obesity. Um, and, and so it's really an important thing that we, we put those down every now and then and start moving. 
Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> well, um, what about, uh, I've, I've seen problems with repetitive thumb movements from texting. I've seen issues uh, come up about that. Do you, do you see that still? Yeah, you know, and, and the way I always describe it is in our body, there's always a balance. There's a balance between the, the stresses we're putting on the tissue okay. and the tissue's ability to then repair itself or even build itself stronger, which is the great thing about bodies that are different than machines. If we use our body in a repetitive way, it can actually develop a resistance to that and build the tissue up stronger. However, the key is we have to give ourselves, our bodies time to do that. So if you're texting all the time and really using your thumb, you're, you're doing maybe little micro traumas in there. And so if you do that a lot, your body might not have enough time to rebuild it and repair it. So then you kind of slowly weaken that tissue, weaken that tissue, weaken that tissue until maybe you get an injury. Okay. And so it's really thinking about how much time am I spending doing the same task and having kind of um, a, a, a really changing up your movement as much as possible. So texting in different ways, using different devices might increase, might mm. change the stress. Okay. And that goes to the position and how you're looking at the device too. And, and you know, do you, are you always looking down? Can you bring your arms up so you look straight ahead? All those might change the stress on your body and just give your tissues time to heal. So what about the development of the, the touch screen? Um, is that changing the way? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a really great question. And, and you, can, you can picture how the ergonomics for the touch screen are maybe different than the old Blackberries we used to have and using right. the double thumbs. And I think um, it, I, I don't know that it's, it's, def, it's related to a specific problem. But again, it's, the doing the, it's using the touch screen the same way over and over. over and over again and not getting enough time in between. The good news is most of us probably don't use it that much and it's not that stressful that our body adapts to it. Now there may be other times when your tissue is not healthy for another reason. Maybe, you're, maybe you have a very repetitive job at work that stresses the mm. tissue or that you're not stressing the tissue enough so it's not building up its tolerance. And so there's a lot of interplay here. And this is, this is again why it's challenging when we look at these things, we do ergonomic studies, there's a lot of debate about what is the right way to do something and what's the wrong way because it's very complex. And everybody, every patient, every person comes to that, that motion and, and that activity with different sets of uh, variables, right? We, we have stronger tissues or weaker tissues. And so it, it very well, it, it can be individual. Oh. And, and I, I always go with comfort and look for finding a comfortable place to do that. If you're uncomfortable, then it, it, it may not work. I, a great example, my, my wife likes to sit in bed and you know do some screen time be, before she goes to bed and she'll play some game. And she's complaining to me about how she's getting numbness down her arm. Oh. And... So she was having what we call an ulnar nerve entrapment, which you, you, if you've ever hit your funny bone, that's your ulnar nerve okay. at your elbow. Mm -hmm. And when you sit with that bent for a really long time, it stretches that nerve. And then what it does is it reduces the blood flow to that nerve. And nerves really like blood, and then it starts to get a little irritated, and she knows it. So it, for her, the easy fix was simply using a stylus versus her hand and her oh, finger. Oh, wow. Okay. And now that she does that, it takes it away. <laughs> now that might not work for the next person, and it wasn't like I came in knowing that, okay, using a stylus was going to be the answer. It was that let's change the stress on her body because this is not working for her. Let's change it up and see if we can find a way that works. And it's good to have a variety of different ergonomic choices. And that's why I really like adjustable chairs when you're sitting. Not because there's a particular way that's right. That I can go in and say, I'm going to set this chair up not knowing anything about this individual and this is going to be right. It's that person teaching that person how to adjust their chair so they can then find a comfortable spot for them. And that might change throughout the day. Maybe for a couple right. hours it's comfortable one way. They can adjust that chair and then it is comfortable for the rest of the day. Okay, great. Well, we're talking with Dr. Adam Rufa, a physical therapy assistant professor, about the best way to use modern devices such as cell phones and tablets on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Um, carpal tunnel syndrome became this huge issue as more Americans began using computers on the job. Is it still a concern? 
Yeah, carpal tunnel still still occurs. Um, and again, there's multiple factors. There's some people who can use the computer all day, not have any problems. There's other people who doesn't take much at all. And, and um, some of it is just even the size of the carpal tunnel. And really what that is, is in your wrist, you've got your carpal bones, which are the bones that make up your wrist. And then there's a, 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 a tendon, basically, that goes over them. And underneath, between that, between that band of tissue and your bones, runs your, your median nerve. Okay. And that feeds sensation to your thumb and your first couple fingers. And some people just have less space in that area. So they're more susceptible to getting that irritated. And it's very similar to my wife. It's just a, a nerve entrapment someplace, someplace else, else where okay. their nerve is not getting the blood flow it needs. It's getting pressure and you can start getting symptoms. Okay. Sometimes if you catch it early, you can change how the person's doing things and that'll be enough. Other times it isn't and, and they need more care. So do you have advice for people about how to avoid developing that sort of situation? I think one of the best advice, one of the best advices is try to keep your body out of extreme positions. So I, I remember very well that there's, there's, I have lots of stories about this, but I, I can remember a, a young a young child coming in for treatment once. He was maybe ten or twelve, and he was having lots of neck pain. And I'm kind of talking through, and it's not uncommon for kids to have musculoskeletal pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we started talking. It was when he was playing video games, and I find well, well, how do you sit when you're playing video games? And he likes to sit on the floor, right in front of this tall dresser where the TV is. So he's spending hours with his neck looking all the way up, straight up. And so an easy fix was just maybe sit on the bed or change your position. And it's not that looking up is a bad position, but you're just putting your neck in a very extreme spot, stressing some of that tissues and keeping it there. Um, it's also, I've, I've run into people who will be watching television and they'll, their body will be facing forward and they'll turn their neck and watch television and be there for hours. Well, that's maybe not the... First off, I wouldn't suggest sitting and watching TV for hours, but maybe straighten yourself (laughs) up so you have more of a neutral position. And the same thing for your wrist. If you're typing, keeping it more in a neutral position and not have your hands bent way up or bent way down when you're doing it. So how do you go about figuring those things out when a patient comes in and says, I mean, is it a lot of interviewing to try to figure out what their habits are? Yeah, it can be challenging. And sometimes you don't find those things. And sometimes it's it's not the is as easy as finding a specific position that's helpful. But yeah, it's really talking through with the person and seeing what their daily life is like um, and trying to help them problem solve. Because the goal is really to give them tools to be able to identify what is and what isn't working for them and then having some options about how to change it. Because again, there's a lot of variability and what works for one person might not work for another. So give having choices of of movement and, th- and really the key is is just trying to change up your activity and your position we're lucky we just got a new building where i work and they gave us all desks that we can sit and stand up oh neat and i find that i don't do well if i stand up for a long time i i, I start feeling uncomfortable but the same thing if i sit for a long time but now i have a choice i can sit some i can stand some i can move around and that's what works best okay okay well, in terms of um, treatments, I mean, being able to have the option to sit on the bed instead of the floor to correct the situation, but are are there times when other interventions are needed? Yeah, there there is. And a lot of times what we'll look at, if we think, if we narrow it down to it's a tissue problem, so if it's a tendon in my thumb or, or muscle in my neck, we look at doing two things. One is trying to first give advice to reduce the strain on that tissue, but then also to do things like exercise and stretching, which help that tissue to build up a better tolerance mm. to dealing with that stress. So we, I find it's best if you do both. If you try to reduce the amount of stress on that tissue, but also give exercises and other things that help to build up that tissue's tolerance. Because it really is a balance between the tissue's tolerance for stress and the amount of force you put on it. Okay. I wonder if um, the proliferation of electronic devices, if that's had an impact on just the education of physical therapists to be aware of these sorts of things. Well, I, I would say, I mean, it has had some impact as far as awareness. One of, the, one of the biggest, I think, technology in general has had an amazing impact on healthcare. I mean, I talk a lot about studies. So I can look up, before I came to this interview, I looked up and I said, let me, I know I've seen some studies about posture and neck pain. I've done a lot with posture and shoulder pain. And I can very easily sit down 
get on the internet and pull up study after study that looks at this, where 15 years ago, I'd have to drive yes. into the <laughs> library, go down to the basement, look through books and try to find information. So it's, it's given us so much greater access to information. So it's been a huge positive, but the negative part of it is that people spend a lot more time not moving, including right. us. Right. <laughs> so we don't move as much. Our patients don't move as much. And that just is, is overall not great for health. But it really, I, I think that of all the, of all the thing, all the technologies that have come out that having access to the research and being able to, being able to really get that very quickly is probably the biggest um, advantage we have today than we did 20 years ago. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, this has been your host, Amber Smith, speaking with Dr. Adam Rufa, an assistant professor of physical therapy at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse. And this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, skin care for seniors. Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Our skin changes as we age, and the dermatologic issues we face when we are young are different than what we may face in our older years. Here to go over this is Dr. Ramsey Farah. He's the Division Chief of Dermatology at Upstate. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about the differences between young skin and old skin. Sure. So uh, this is a very timely subject, actually. Uh, statistics done about uh, 10 or 20 years ago show that the U.S. population is going to double or triple by the uh, end of the first quarter of the 21st century, which is mm. coming up pretty soon. And so there are uh, quite a few differences between elderly skin and uh, young skin. And these differences in pathophysiology actually do result in certain uh, skin conditions that we find more commonly in the elderly. So... Um, the uh, main changes, uh, I think, can be described as changes in physiology. So that is to say, the skin when you're younger is generally thicker than it is when you're older. Um, the uh, turnover of the skin, how quickly and how efficiently the skin regenerates itself, is also changed, and it's obviously less in the elderly. Uh, the elderly skin retains less water. So, in fact, there are more trans-epidermal water losses in our elderly population, which means uh, water content leaves the skin more readily and it makes it drier and then more prone to inflammation and so forth. Uh, there are also other changes in the immune system, really, if you think about it. The skin, because it has immune cells, is one of the first uh, barriers uh, or points of contact uh, with our immune system to the outside world. So a lot of the immunity issues we have um, is achieved through our skin. So the immune system in the elderly tells, tends to slow down. There are less uh, immune cells, B and T cells. Uh, they signal each other less efficiently and so forth. So the immunity of the skin goes down. I never realized that. Is mm -hmm. that why one of the reasons why uh, elderly people may be more prone to pick up infections? Or? Yes, that's huh. uh, exactly true. Uh, and the infections can range from bacterial to yeast infections and so forth. But that's, that's very true huh. as well. Uh, the blood flow in the skin changes. So uh, elderly skin, the, the capillary loops, which are the small blood vessels that feed the skin, are shortened uh, and um, they're smaller, etc. So there's less blood flow to the skin. So, so with less blood flow, is that why sometimes old people seem like they're always cold? Uh, that's certainly part of it. I mean, one of the functions of the skin 
is thermoregulation. So our internal core body temperature has a lot to do with our skin. And when the skin is diseased, whether it's in the young or in the old, uh, that ability to regulate our core body temperature is compromised. So thermoregulation, which is one of the functions of the skin, also changes in the elderly. Um, uh, there are some other changes. There are fewer glands. The lipid content of our skin also changes. Uh, the number of sweat glands goes down, etc. So there are a number of significant physiologic differences. Now, the one that seems most visible is wrinkles. Mm-hmm. And I haven't heard you mention wrinkles, but s- these things that you've talked about play into that, right? Sure, right. So there's the issue of what, you know, what causes our skin to age. And there are two schools of thought. One school of thought is that there are intrinsic uh, uh, sort of methodologies or processes, rather, of aging. And these are universal and inevitable. Uh, and that's true, right? So there are, physio- there are programmed uh, cellular behaviors that cause aging, right? There's cell death and etc. So that's something we can't control. That's uh, in our genetic makeup. And then there are extrinsic factors that contribute to aging. And basically, that's the DNA damage uh, acquired through years and years of uh, sun exposure or ultraviolet light exposure. And uh, honestly, there, those two processes are probably at work, both intrinsic and e- extrinsic. I would say, though, that most of the signs of what we perceive as older skin, wrinkling, uh, blotchy discoloration, uh, laxity of skin, uh, etc., those are predominantly related to ultraviolet light radiation. So I think both are at play, but what we visually perceive as older skin, those visual things we perceive are are mostly from ultraviolet light exposure. So sort of as a dermatologist looking at someone's skin, you you can tell sort of how they've lived their life in some sure, ways, Sure, right? you can, yes. Uh, it's not an exact science, but uh, you can tell. Um, of course, some people are more protected than others by the uh, natural pigment content that they have in the skin, but young or old, you can take, into the, you can take those factors into account and you can tell whether they've been outdoors all the time and whether they've protected their s- skin with sunscreen, etc., now, you mentioned um, uh, fewer sweat glands. We mm-hmm. lose sweat glands as we age. Does that mean we sweat less? Uh, we, we sweat less, and we have a decreased ability to control our core body temperature mm-hmm. because, of course, one of the mechanisms of uh, temperature control is through sweating. And, and so I might add that's why, for example, uh, in very hot climates, when there is a heat wave, you know, who are the most vulnerable well, it's usually young kids and the elderly. So both extremes of the age uh, spectrum for different reasons are more vulnerable. But of course, the elderly, because they don't have as many sweat glands. So a heat wave is much more dangerous for someone who doesn't have air conditioning living okay. somewhere in the south or equatorial areas. Uh, what about nerves in the, in the skin? Do- so those are affected as well. Um, those have physiologic changes, and uh, the nerves probably don't work quite as well. And so that ties into one of the common uh, problems of older skin is that the elderly tend to itch. And we don't know exactly why they itch, but it must surely have something to do with their cutaneous nerve endings. You know, nerves give off signals. They can give off um, t- signals for pressure, heat, etc., but they also give off pain signals. And in the elderly, because the nerves are not working quite as well, they must give off a weaker pain signal that is perceived by the brain as itch. This is at least a theory. We haven't mm-hmm. been able to prove it, but that certainly has something to do with one of the common elderly skin conditions, which is itching. 
Well, these physio- physiologic changes that we've been talking about, does, do these set the elderly up for specific skin diseases? Y- yes, they, they do for sure. So we can go through some of the specifics uh, that we find in the elderly. So as I mentioned, itching is one of the most common presenting symptoms of elderly skin. And as I said before, we don't know quite why uh, this goes on, but it surely has something to do with uh, what you could best describe as as a quasi-neuropathy. The nerves are not quite so normal. Um, the skin being thinner is more uh, susceptible to uh, chemicals that might be irritating to the skin, and they therefore might be absorbed more rather than the skin acting as a barrier. Um, the uh, elderly, because of their age, have underlying medical conditions. These can be metabolic disorders. These can be endocrine conditions. These can be problems with the kidney and liver. And disease in all of those organs can translate to itching in the skin. Um, and, of course, there's uh, the issue of the skin becoming more dry. Remember, we had just said that uh, there is more transepidermal water losses in the elderly skin. So um, older skin can best be described as dehydrated. And when it gets to a certain degree, again, uh, the pathophysiology is changed to a degree that then there is inflammation in the skin as a reaction, and that can cause itching as well. So we have itching. Uh, we have dry skin. Um the skin is much thinner. You know, sometimes I have to do biopsies on on elderly individuals for various reasons. And I myself, you know, being a dermatopathologist, have the opportunity to look under the microscope. And sometimes the epidermis, which is the top layer of the skin, is literally two cells thick. So it's wow. very thin, and therefore it's um, predisposed to mechanical trauma and shearing forces and so forth. So it's very fragile, and it can tear, uh, not only with uh, sort of normal day-to-day activities where you might brush up against a doorknob or something, but for those elderly individuals who are incapacitated and are wheelchair-bound or bedridden, that constant pressure can lead to ulcerations. So chronic um, uh, sort of bed sores uh, are more common in the elderly. And again, that has to do with the thinness of the skin, the fact that the elderly have decreased peripheral blood flow, so there's not as much blood flow to the skin. Um, And of course, uh, some of the underlying medical conditions can decrease their ability to heal their wounds. In addition to that, uh, we spoke about the decreased number of immune cells in the skin, so that predisposes them to bacterial infections, um, yeast infections, especially if individuals have underlying conditions like diabetes and so forth, which oftentimes uh, they do. And uh, then there's the issue of malignancy, right? We had spoken about intrinsic and extrinsic reasons for skin aging. And the DNA damage uh, that one has accumulated over the years can manifest as a skin cancer when you're older. But I would also like to say that the elderly have decreased uh, DNA repair mechanisms. So I often tell patients, even though the latency period to develop a skin cancer may be decades, in the elderly, it is still worthwhile to use sunscreens, even though they've done their damage many years ago. Uh, they have less ability to repair the DNA damage that they're incurring right now. Right now. Huh. Right. So sunscreens are an important part of elderly skin care because they have a higher risk of malignancy. And again, related to the thinness of the skin, there's bruising. All the time people come to my office and say, hey, doc, what's this? What's this discolored area on my arm? And it's actually just a bruise. And that happens, again, because the skin is thinner. Uh, the dermis, which is the scaffolding of the skin where all your collagen is, that's thinner too. And that, in our youth, acts as uh, a pad, so to speak, 
And so when you traumatize the skin, it can absorb some of the energy, kind of like padding. Mm. Well, that goes away in the elderly. And so what happens is with minor trauma, their blood vessels burst and they leak blood into the skin and you see it as a bruise. And this is compounded by uh, uh, the situation where most of the elderly are on, or many of them are on blood thinners. Uh, aspirin even being one of them, and almost everyone is on aspirin these days. Um, and those bruises may take a longer time to heal. They take you know. a long time to heal, and by the time one of them has healed, you, you probably get another one. <laughs> well, I yeah. also want to ask you um, sort of how you treat these things, the dry skin and itching, and, and kind of segue into some general advice for promoting healthy skin sure. for seniors. Um, so uh, obviously if there's a specific infection that needs to be treated medically with medications, either creams or systemic agents, if there's a skin cancer, usually that has to be treated surgically. Um, if there's a problem like itching and so forth, again, you have to take it as a case-by-case -case basis. Why is this patient itching? Is it just because they have dry skin? Or do they have an underlying disease that's causing them to itch, like uh, diabetes, sure. for example, or renal disease? Are they institutionalized? Could they be? Could they have scabies? Uh, right. So obviously, you have to look at it as a case by case basis. But in terms of general measures, um, one of the things we just talked about is is skin cancer. So the elderly, when they go outside, should have sunscreen applied. Uh, I think one of the least costly and most effective uh, measures that people can pursue is to just moisturize the skin. When the water content and the lipid content of the skin are more normalized, that can sort of erase a multitude of sins, so to speak, for the skin. It can just make the, the physiology of the skin healthier. And a lot of the things we've been talking about, like the itching and so forth, can be treated. So, so any, any sort of moisturizing lotion or cream? or Yes, the trick is to use them more often. And I think the over-the-counter ones are generally all equivalent. It's a question of finding one that you like, uh, and therefore will use often. And so liberal use is very important, and especially after the shower. So when people shower, they should sort of blot dry, not scrub dry, leave a little bit of water content on the skin, and then put the moisturizer on within three minutes or so. But I will say, in terms of the over-the-counter products, look for products that have ceramides in them. So those are uh, lipids that get depleted in the skin, and I find those very helpful. But ceramides, ceramides, C E R A M I D E S. Correct. Ceramides. Okay. Yes. Um, now, what about bathing? Right. So the bathing should be uh, limited to to once a day. Usually, in the elderly, if they're debilitated and and so forth, that's not an issue. They don't measure. They don't, uh, you know, bathe daily. But once a day, not more. Uh, use lukewarm water, not very hot water, because hot water can actually make uh, the skin drier because it, it evaporates off your skin and takes what water in, huh. is in the skin with it. So lukewarm water, not more than 10 minutes. Use what, a, what about soap? Yeah, use a good soap uh, that has oil in it, like, um, you know, Dove is a good soap. Aveeno is an oatmeal-based soap, etc. And try and avoid uh, things that have a lot of scents and so forth in them. Um, and then uh, blot dry and use that moisturizer on. Um, put a humidifier in, in the room. This is especially true of um, the northern climates where in the winter we have a lot of forced air heating. The air gets drier. It's less humid anyway. Um, and lastly, I'd say, you know, good nutrition uh, and personal hygiene is very important. You know, a lot of the elderly may not be eating right. Um, so, so those general measures that promote general health anyway will improve the quality of the skin. Some women perhaps might need hormonal therapy, but this is best discussed with, with their primary care doctor or their uh, geriatric uh, doctor. Um, and, uh, you know, those, those kinds of things, I think, are very important. I, I should say that the elderly, oftentimes because of the disease that results to infirmity, 
they're just not able to take care of their skin. They're not able to bathe uh, frequently. They're not able to put their uh, moisturizers on or their sunscreens. They're, they don't eat perhaps correctly. So uh, someone who can help them with these things, if, if they have someone who's helping them and aid, uh, those sort of nutrition and personal hygiene issues, if they're incorporated uh, into the AIDS repertoire, can help their skin. It seems like some basic stuff, but it, it's very important. It's, it like so. it's basic. That's well, right. thank you so much for the information. My guest has been Dr. Ramsey Farah. He's the Division Chief of Dermatology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what you need to know about palliative care. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're discussing end-of-life care with Dr. Sylvia Pasnachuk, a physician who specializes in palliative medicine. I appreciate you being here. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start uh, by explaining what palliative care is. How do you describe or define palliative care? You know, that's a great question, and I think the whole field in the, the public is looking for a definition that... Um, um, will have specific meaning. So I'll try two or three different definitions because, again, um, the term from a semantic point of view was coined by a physician up north. Um, um, his, name was, uh, his name is uh, Dr. Mount, uh, Balfour Mount. He was a, he's a, I'm not sure if he's still practicing, but he coined this term in the early 70s. And... Um, Palliative care for, for the, the term comes from the Latin pallium, which means a cloak, uh, something that's meant to cover something, hmm. a garment that's covering. Um, um, and again, I think, you know, it's, it, it was a good choice at that, at that time, but I think it, it still creates a little confusion in the public about not many people know about, you know, the Latin kind of roots of this right. word. So it's just a strange word. And that creates a little, um, I would say, um, um, a strange feeling for, for patients being referred to a palliative care because they don't really know what to expect from, from, from this consult. Um, and was the cloak meant to sort of just cover up symptoms or cover up? I think up the cloak was meant to cover the main diagnosis. So palliative care um, um, is, is, is care meant to address symptoms when no cure is um, um, or cure is no longer available. Ah, okay. So in, I think at, at the time it was a great idea, but I think somewhere along the way we lost both the medical field and the public because it's, it's just not an easy to understand term. Sometimes palliative care is um, 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 used interchangeably with uh, supportive care or supportive oncology, specifically with patients with cancer. Um, but an, a definition in, in different terms will be um, uh, a specialized medical care for people with serious illnesses. And, of course, the question will be if we have cardiology, if we have oncology, if we have nephrology, why do we need another level um, for these patients? Um, in the, anth the answer stays, I think, in the fact that... Um, um, uh, the complexity of some of these patients are, is, uh, sometimes becomes an issue um, uh, because most of them, they don't suffer from just one disease. They're very fragile. They're um, old sometimes. Um, they start losing function. And it becomes um, much more than a disease. It becomes managing decline. And I would say in two words, there will be that will be the closest definition I can come up. That's, that's the closest I can come up 
um, for for palliative care is managing decline. Can we give proportional care to patients based on whatever the goals are now, accepting that they have a diagnosis for which we no longer have a cure or meaningful treatment? So there, perhaps there's a tumor that is inoperable or that they've done everything that they can to sort of, you know, treat it. Um, so this is more um, focused on improving the patient's quality of life rather than trying to get rid of the cancer. Absolutely. That's one of the um, um, main, um, um, I think, qualities of palliative care. Another one that usually is not addressed by traditional medicine is taking care of the caregivers, of the family members. Um, most of the time, the distress in the family and um, uh, trying to managing this um, sometimes slow decline, sometimes faster than, than, um, than expected, um, creates big-time distress um, in the family. And then um, what I'm trying to say, the traditional approach, I think, is trying to address the patient's issues with the understanding that um, everything else will have a different, like, approach. Like the family, they'll have to go seek themselves medical attention or social attention, or which, again, I think palliative care connects the family uh, the patient with the family, and and we're trying, um, for example, we're using diagnosis never that used to be recognized by the main payers, such as caregiver fatigue, or caregiver burnout. Um, unfortunately, they no longer recognized, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. Sure, sure. Well, how does palliative care differ from hospice care? That's that's a great question, and I think, I think. There is no clear line. With this being said, um, I'll try to mix them in a head and see if we can pick the right one. So palliative care is appropriate for any patient suffering from a serious disease, from, say, congestive heart failure, any kind of cancer, dementia, at any stage of the disease, regardless of the fact if they're still taking treatment or not for their main condition. While hospice... By definition, it's a um, hospice is a Medicare benefit, meaning that if cure or treatment is no longer pursued or is no longer followed or, or believed to help these patients and they want to have their care mostly at home, where um, uh, that's mostly the hospice philosophy, then the hospice benefit kicks in, and then hospice as a unified kind of payer will take care of all their needs in the house. Hospice is a, um, um, the organization, the main, the, the main team is made of um, 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 physician, medical director sometimes, I mean, most of the time, the nurse is the, the leader of the clinical team, and then there is a social worker, there is a chaplain, there is volunteer, so it's a, um, what, what we call a um, um, interdepartmental kind of group that, that, that handles each and every case. They meet weekly. There are weekly visits by the nurse. Um, it's a completely different program. So palliative care can follow at each and any given time a patient during their course, meaning that they don't have to meet any criteria for as long as they have a serious disease so you could still you could be in hospice care, but still be uh, palliative care as well. That's a good question. Hospice care is doing the palliative care. In and hospice, uh, the uh, focus is in palliation on on dealing with the symptoms because again, there is no more cure. There is no more treatment that is offered for the main disease. So the main condition is following is 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 natural. Okay. Um, so if you're a, a patient who's receiving outpatient palliative services, um, does that necessarily mean that you don't want life-saving care, like the do not resuscitate? That's a great question. Not necessarily. It's all believed on the patient. It, it's all um, meant to follow the patient's beliefs and, and wishes. Of course, 
in late stages of disease, um, resuscitation by itself will not really make sense. There is less than 1% of patients that survive resuscitation in late stages of a chronic disease. Um, they malnourished, um, they extremely, and it's, it's, it's a procedure that uh, might create only discomfort to the family if they're watching it. And again, the results are not expected to be um, um, the best possible. It's, it's interesting that this resuscitation was, um, um, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a very hot topic right now, I think, in the field, because, again, we are expected to kind of explain to the patients for why that resuscitation would probably not make sense because of the decline and the fact that it's really not going to bring a better quality of life or it's not going to change the natural course of their condition. Um, but I'm seeing patients where um, they feel abandoned if they sign a DNR order mm -hmm. or they have, they had previous experiences when they felt the care was no longer the care that they expected to, to see for their uh, family members in sure. the past. And they feel, n no, I still, I still want to fight. I'm not giving up. This is what I hear a lot. This is never about giving up. It's, it's a natural thing. You know, we'll never ask somebody to give up. That won't be right. Okay. Good to know. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate Dr. Sylvia Paznachuk about end-of-life care and palliative medicine. Uh, so how does a patient or their loved one know whether palliative care is right for them? You know, that's a good question. I don't think many people know now about this service. Um, Does the um, primary care provider, is that the person to present the idea to someone, or um, how would they learn about the I would the say they'll be the best actually to offer even um, um, uh, just a, a, a level of palliative care, meaning that uh, uh, primary care physicians should be trained in, um, in symptom control, and they should be able to handle um, this patient's, you know, towards um, end of life. Um, of course, the palliative care physician might come in whenever there is a hard-to-control symptom or there is a very difficult family where the uh, uh, family care practitioner or the primary care physician, um, they have, they, they, they encounter problems in, in, in dealing with things that are not common. And sometimes they're very difficult to treat. And every once in a while, even for symptom control, these patients end up in the hospital. Okay. All right. Um, people that are receiving palliative care, how long does that typically last? How long are they for as long as they live, as there is no... So it could be. Yeah, as opposed to hospice, where for, for hospice, um, um, two physicians should agree that in normal condition, if the disease runs its natural course, then the patient has probably six months or less. Um, but palliative care could be much it's, longer than it's that. It's not limited. It, okay. it can address a, a specific symptom for the duration of the symptom. It can address some uh, psychosocial distress or uh, for as long as that is there. It can become more of a um, 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 type of um, uh, care, you know, uh, that, that, that's kind of pointed towards symptom discomfort and, and follows the main uh, specialties that are involved. Is there paperwork required? I mean, we've done uh, segments on HealthLink about healthcare proxies and that sort of thing. Is that required for palliative care, or is this like another medical specialty? Um, so there are two forms that we usually um, discuss with the patient. They're, they're important forms for their medical care. Um, and these are a healthcare proxy that we recommend for them to have one executed, uh, naming one of their relatives or uh, somebody they trust um, um, to make medical decisions in case they cannot make their own. Um, and then there is a MOLST form, which is um, it stands for Medical Orders for Life Sustaining Therapies. Um, and um, it's um, I think this was um, 
mandated by New York State, I think in 2011, where patients with um, significant medical conditions should be informed and offered palliative care. And part of it, um, it's a way of empowering these patients to keep control over the intensity of care towards the end of life, such as resuscitation or feeding tubes or, say, IV fluids, um, um, intubation. So, um, um, so that's something that we usually discuss with the patients. Of course, it's, a, um, it's not an easy discussion because each and every patient, they, ha- they, they come with their own experiences. And we try not to send the... Most of them, they feel, well, you're trying to abandon me in case I need you then why can't I call 911? But that's not, that's not what we're talking about. It's just trying to empower them to have control in late stages over, again, would so you be willing... So there's a plan about what their right, wishes that be. they can plan in a, in a medical kind of uh, way about would you prefer if something happens to be in a hospital or at home? And we're trying not to influence that. Of course, we are biased ourselves in the system. And there is a... Um, quite a degree of burnout in the system too and sometimes these discussions are a little biased and we're trying to stay as neutral as we can. Well, well, thank you so much for the information. Uh, my guest has been Assistant Professor of Medicine, Dr. Sylvia Paznachuk. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Gigi Marks is a poet who is also an educator, scholar, editor, and conservationist. Her most recent book is called Territory. Her poem, Endurance, shows us poetry's marvelous ability to take a concrete object and by describing it, make us think of something deeper. Endurance. Purple onion in its skin, reddish too, doesn't roll on its round side, has a place to sit where roots died back and kept things flat. There's the paper sound of its dry outside, the firm rock of its body and new cells stored in old ones. There's the living arrested, grown in the dark dirt, harvested in the open air. And now there is this place that isn't like the ground, in hand, doesn't warm until palm and finger hold it for a while. Green, enduring, just at the tip where it is growing again. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a course about how food is medicine. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.